Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. This episode, entitled Don't Look Clearly, is going to be a little bit of a grab bag. I'm going to start with a little follow-up from the last episode, and then move into some commentary on the Netflix movie Don't Look Up, which will include some spoilers. Uh, I don't think it's a big deal since about 15 minutes into the movie, you basically know exactly what's going to happen, and it's just fun to watch it play out, but if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want the spoilers, you know, I'll let you know when those are coming. So moving on to the first order of business, though, I want to talk about voting rights. Um, as expected, the voting rights bills failed in the Senate as Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema both refused to change the filibuster rules to protect democracy. And this has led a lot of commentators, many of whom I respect, to lambast the Democrats for a failed strategy. Some have directly blamed Biden, while others have said the Dems should have pushed voting rights first thing in 2021. I want to just say unequivocally that all of this commentary that is sharply critical of the Democrats' strategy on voting rights is manifestly and deeply wrong. And it's depressing to see so many smart people unable to look clearly at the facts. Our political media landscape seems to select for contrarianism, and even smart people fall into this trap. It just, it just sounds so much better to lambast the Democrats and show how bad they were and kind of take a, be, get on your high horse and act all superior. So let me just say why this, these critiques are wrong. And, and of course, let me just say, it's not like everything the Democrats did in this voting rights push was perfect. Of course not. But the overall strategy, I think, was the right one, even if it was doomed for failure. And so let me go into some detail here. First off, as I've said many times before, Biden is not a king. We don't live in a monarchy. Biden can't just tell people what to do. So this notion, if you just twisted arms harder or been more forceful, that Manchin and Cinema would have just voted how he wanted is just nonsense. It's just utter and complete bullshit. And I just don't know how people keep peddling this stupidity. Second, there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever, any indication, that if the Democrats had started out, you know, early 2021 with voting rights bills, that they would have succeeded. Why would Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema have voted differently then than they would now? If anything, the Democrats then would have failed right out of the gate, right? The first things in Biden's presidency would have been this huge failure on voting rights, and this would have hurt their, the rest of their agenda. Instead, what did they do? They passed the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion, the Bipartisan Infrastructure um, Framework, $1.2 trillion, and that's over $3 trillion of really good investments that really helped the economy and the American people. They also got close to passing Build Back Better, and I know close doesn't mean anything, um, you know, ultimately in terms of legislative victories. But this sequence of passing the economic agenda first always made the most sense, given that we were in a pandemic 
and we were facing economic disaster, right? There would have been nothing to weaken the Democrats more than to let the pandemic and the economy just continue to unravel. Now, I also think it was smart to let the January 6th committee have some time to amass more evidence to demonstrate the details of the failed coup. You know, showing that the Democrats are for voting rights while the Republicans are literally trying to overthrow the government, that's a good contrast. And yes, it would have been fresh in people's minds back in, you know, January, February of 2021, but we didn't have the details about, you know, all the memos and the detailed plot, coup plots that that Trump and his cabal were engaged in. And so I think I think the sequencing was totally right. Also, you know, the midterms are, are this year. And so we had we had a little bit more leeway to get the voting rights stuff right. And we crafted some good bills. You know, now again, they didn't pass. That sucks, right? But the Democrats do still have the opportunity to pass some parts of the Build Back Better bill and perhaps even the Electoral Count Act. So not all is lost, even with this big defeat on on you know the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. I also want to be clear here that sometimes you need to take a stand for what is right, even if it doesn't pay immediately immediate political dividends. Right? This notion that you only you know take votes where you're guaranteed to win. I mean, come on, that's just not how the world works, right? Sometimes you got to take risks. And and for voting rights, you got to take a risk. And this this vote on the filibuster, this is the first time the Democrats have ever had a vote to dismantle the filibuster for legislation like voting rights. And they got 48 out of 50 senators. That's 96% of the Democratic caucus was united to change the filibuster for voting rights. That's an amazing achievement. It didn't get us over the finish line, but you know what? These things rarely go, you know, just all or nothing. They're, they're, there's incremental progress. And the Democrats have now made it basically a prerequisite for senators, for new senators, that they must oppose the filibuster, at least for voting rights. And this is a huge win and a big change from where the Democrats were even a few years ago. There were very few Democrats talking about getting rid of the filibuster even five years ago. And now it's 96% of the the existing caucus. So if we can get a couple more Democratic senators who oppose the filibuster, we can get rid of it. Now, of course, that's going to be tough. And if we lose the House, we can't do it because it wouldn't pass the House. So yes, you know, this is is a tough loss. But it is progress, though. And I think getting people on the record to, you know, either before getting rid of the filibuster or against it is important. So for example... I think Kirsten Sinema's career is over. I think she is going to lose a Democratic primary and be out of politics forever. And I think that person who beats her in the primary in Arizona in, you know, 2023 or 24 could then win and keep that seat. So I don't think that seat is gone. I think she is gone. You know, people have been trying to read the tea leaves and get into her head of what the hell she is thinking. You know, does she want to be another John McCain maverick? Is she thinking of running for president? I don't know, and I don't fucking care, to be honest. I don't care what's in her twisted mind. But I think her career is done. I think that vote doomed her, and we'll see. I'm putting that as an utter prediction. My prediction here is twofold, that she loses a Democratic primary and that then her political career is over. So we'll see how how that, um, you know, those are two more things you can hold me to account for.
Now, I just want to be clear. With Joe Manchin, things are a little different. I don't like Joe Manchin. I think he's a hypocrite. I think he's, uh, you know, he's insincere. He acts in bad faith. But let's be real here. He is in the Trumpiest state in the nation. More Trumpy than Alabama, Mississippi. Okay, without him, we wouldn't have a Democratic majority. Period. End of story. Okay, so I'll cut J- Joe Manchin a little bit of slack. You know, give, given that he comes from the zombie zombie wasteland of West Virginia. You know, Kirsten Cinema comes from a state that's tending Democratic. We have two Democratic senators there, so I don't give her any slack. Joe Manchin. I'll give him, you know, a little, little, minute amount of slack. So that's on the voting rights thing. I want to switch gears here a little and talk about the the Supreme Court invalidating Biden's vaccine mandate. Again, I predicted that, as most people did. It wasn't a big stretch. These nut jobs are fully in the death cult, and they have no principle and no morals, no scruples. They are, you know, they're illegitimate to the core. Fortunately, however, on the Supreme Court beat there, uh, Stephen Breyer announced his retirement. And while that will do nothing to shift the balance of power on the court, you know, in the short term, it's still going to be six nut jobs and three, you know, strong progressive um, on the court. Um, You know, it will be outstanding to get a young, strong black woman justice on the court. And that will mean that all three liberals are women. All three are young, and all three are smart. Smart, and um, you know this also means that the on the court of the the six you know conservative right wingers, three of them are relatively old: Alito, Roberts, and Thomas. So, you know, um, it is most likely that the next openings on the court will be amongst the right wing, which will provide an opportunity for Democrats to pick up seats when those older nut jobs die off or retire. Now, of course, I believe strongly that the Democrats should expand the court. They shouldn't wait for the hope on the luck that, you know, Alito and, you know, and Thomas might die when there's a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate, right? I don't believe in that. They should expand the court because it's an illegitimate court made up of right-wing nut jobs. They, you know, some of them, especially on the Supreme Court, you know, we, we got Scalia's seat was stolen from Obama. And then I think the bad luck of, you know, the liberal icon RBG dying under the illegitimate, sociopathic, treasonous cult leader, we need those two seats back, period. Like, you know, they just do not deserve those seats. Those are illegitimate to be in the hands of the right wing. And just more broadly, the court is just an embarrassment. I mean, it's just such an illegitimate embarrassment with these six political hacks, you know, quoting Fox News talking points, you know, during you know, the most serious cases facing the nation. But I am am happy that Breyer did the right thing. You know, people were wondering if he was. He did the right thing. And again, even though one liberal justice replacing another in the minority won't do a ton to change rulings, I really look forward to this new, young, smart, strong black woman challenging the nut jobs and exposing them for their corruption. Because something tells me that, especially when you're in the minority with three you know, you got nothing to lose, they're going to go all out swinging, just like Sotomayor and Kagan have been doing. And Breyer has not. Breyer has been trying to, 
you know, make these conciliatory notes and everything. Enough of that. Enough of that old bipartisan bullshit. This is this is ideological warfare. We need warriors. And I'm pretty sure whoever Biden nominates is going to be in that mold. I could be wrong, but that's my expectation. And I look forward to seeing that. So look, January was a rough month for Democrats. There's no getting around it, right? It was a rough month. But I think a lot of the commentary has been flat out wrong. And I think the first black woman Supreme Court justice in our nation's history is a really great bright spot to look forward to. And, uh, you know, I think we should just end on that. We'll take a break and I'll come up with uh, back with the commentary on Don't Look Up. What, the black nation? Okay, so now on to some commentary on the Netflix hit Don't Look Up. Again, some spoilers are coming, so if you haven't seen it and you really don't want to hear any commentary about it, you know, you might want to return to this episode after you've watched it, which I highly recommend you do. It is definitely entertaining and has some good social commentary. Many have said that it's the first good climate movie since it uses the threat of a comet coming to Earth to show the absurdity of how we're dealing with the climate crisis. You know, as someone who has worked in this field for 20 plus years, I think there is a lot of truth to that. And before I get to what I think is the best part of the movie, I want to highlight what the creators got wrong. And I haven't seen many people comment on this, but I think it's a big, they made one really crucial mistake. And what I think that mistake did was it prevented the movie from being great. I think it's a solidly good, entertaining movie, but I think it could have been great if they had made one change. And so towards the end of the movie, when the clearly MAGA crowd, right, because obviously they're they're kind of, you know, the people have the red hats on, it's clearly, you know, meant to be a MAGA crowd, and they're listening to the, the crazy president, and someone looks up and sees the, the comment in the sky, And they start yelling that they've been lied to, and they start throwing bottles at the stage. This is, again, towards the end of the movie, when finally the the, the don't look up crowd looks up and sees that they've been lied to. This has the kind of redemptive quality of showing, you know, that even the, the MAGA can face reality and realize they've been duped and, you know, turn on the people who have duped them. The problem is this is 100% wrong and would never happen. What would have been much better is if when the guy looked up and saw the comet, he had yelled something about, look at the Jewish space lasers are projecting a comet in the sky. They're lying to us, right? And of course, that's a reference to the zombie fascist Marjorie Taylor Greene, who actually said something about Jewish space lasers last year. You can go look that up. I'm not making that up. This would have been the perfect way to kind of put the kind of nail in the coffin on the MAGA zombies, right? Showing that no matter what they see, that the guy's literally watching the comet barreling towards Earth, no matter what the evidence, the zombies will never face the truth because they never will. The reality is that in this 
zombie apocalypse, there is just nothing. There is no amount of evidence to get that hardcore right-wing base into reality. And either the creator of the movies were too cowardly to go there, or they just don't fully understand the political moment we're in. And that's why I think they were on the precipice, you know, the edge of greatness, and they just couldn't make that final leap, right? If they had gone there and taken the movie to the next level by showing people searching, you know, showing the MAGA crowd searching frantically for the space lasers, projecting the image of the comet in the sky, and crazy, you know, Fox News, OAN commentators, you know, going on about, you know, you know, the space lasers are making you believe there's a comet, but there's no comet, you know, that would have made the movie a true classic. Instead, they took the easier route and had the MAGA crowd turn on the president and her advisors, but it was untruthful. Uh, although clearly, you know, the movie was a direct social commentary. I mean, these were the MAGA crowd. There's no, there's no doubt about that. They wanted a small redemptive angle. And um, yeah, I understand the inclination for that, but as artists, you should stick to the truth, not what feels good, even if it's tough. And the overwhelming evidence is, is that the hardcore MAGA crowd, not every single one, but the hardcore Republican base, two-thirds, tens of millions of people, are beyond reason. And how do I know this, right? Why, how come, you know, why am I just not a liberal, you know, commentator just throwing out accusations? How do I know this as a fact? Because we have two real world examples where the MAGA crowd has been presented with overwhelming evidence and still they refuse to believe the truth. The first, of course, is the COVID pandemic. We have nearly a million dead and yet there are tens of millions of the right wing base who think the pandemics is a hoax. Two years in. Even though they are the demographic most at risk of serious illness and death, and thousands of them are literally going to their death each and every month, still not believing of that COVID is real and ranting anti-vax conspiracy theories. It doesn't get crazier than that. It is a fascist death cult, period. But perhaps even more telling are how the MAGA crowd has responded to the events of January 6th. We have documented video evidence, hours and hours and hours of video evidence of thousands of MAGA nutjobs storming the Capitol, beating police, Confederate flags, Nazi flags, desecrating our most sacred institutions. And most of the MAGA don't believe they, what they saw with their very own eyes. It was Antifa. It was a false flag operation. No, they were patriots and they're being held as political prisoners. This is proof that there is literally nothing, I mean nothing, to bring a large portion of the MAGA crowd into reality. They are lost in a cult and may never come back. And I don't, I'm not happy to say that. I would love it if evidence could persuade these people. I would love it if when the January 6th committee starts its public hearings, if the millions of the MAGA go, oh wow, maybe I shouldn't back a traitorous cult. And I should, you know, be, you know, not be part of this. But they're not going to, right? And we have the evidence already that they are not going to. And just imagine again how these very same people would have acted if those who had been Biden, you know, those who had stormed the Capitol had been Biden supporters or if they had been black and brown people. I would bet my life that the right wing would still be calling for their execution to this day, right? 
you would have all the right-wing nutjobs and all the networks calling for the execution of the people who stormed the Capitol if they had been Democrats or black and brown people. There is just simply no doubt in my mind about that. But instead, we get everything from their patriots to it was, you know, it was actually a false flag operation, right? It's just all lunacy and bullshit. Now, so despite the fact that Don't Look Up missed this crucial point and veered off course and didn't didn't go for greatness, um, it was still good. And it's one of the last scenes in the movie that I think is the most poignant. And many other commentators have pointed this out, but I want to speak on this briefly. DiCaprio's character, after having cheated on his wife, he returns home to have dinner with her and his kids as the comet is, you know, barreling to earth about to destroy everyone. And as they sit around the table, you know, with cheer and good food, he comments, we really had it all. And this really does hit home strongly because it's really the the kind of principal thought and kind of emotion that I, I tap almost on a daily basis that like, we have this insane abundance and potential in America and, and the world more generally, but definitely in America. We're the wealthiest empire in history, and yet we've squandered so much of that on war and death and destruction. And it's so abundantly clear that we could have such a better country and world if we just used our resources more wisely. Just that simple thing. We just had our priorities right because we really do have it all. Right, America, we have we have thousands of miles of coastline facing the biggest markets in the world, Asia and Europe. We have, you know, friendly neighbors on both you know um, terrestrial borders with Mexico and Canada. We have abundant natural resources, we have huge amounts of space, we have all different ecosystems and climates, we have incredibly intelligent people who want to you know work here and, and create businesses and new ideas. And yet, what do we do with it? You know, we do the war on terrorism. We burn all the oil. You know, we have tons of guns and big pickup trucks. And, you know, it's just like, how are we using this? It's just it's just insanity, right? And the thing about the climate crisis is, is that the things that we're witnessing now, you know, the climate changing year by year, decade by decade, these are things we're supposed to witness on a geological time scale. It's supposed to take thousands of years for the climate to change not 10. And so well, this is the thing that people just don't get. If you're seeing this in real time, it means it's going so fast that things are about to get really insane, like a comet coming to earth. And yet we're fiddling while Rome burns. We're literally fiddling and, you know, still leasing oil wells and still letting oil companies, you know, do more drilling and build more pipelines while literally the planet is just burning. And so after the break, I'll come back with some final thoughts that lead into the antidote for today. Okay, and so for the antidote today, I want to start with a little anecdote. I was at a restaurant sitting outside and got into a conversation with a couple women there. And um, 
we're talking about the climate crisis and just, you know, how, you know, I, I don't know how we got on the topic, but one of them had an 11 year old son and she was saying how he was lamenting to her how everything has sucked since he's been born. He was saying, you know, Trump got elected and the climate emergency and a pandemic. And it was just so sad to me. You know, I was thinking, wow, an 11 year old kid with both the awareness and the kind of the emotional maturity to just look out at the world and just go, wow, everything sucks. And it's like everything sucks just around the time that I came onto this planet. And obviously it has particular resonance with me now that I have a little child of my own. Um, and, you know, and the more I talk to people with older children, you know, who are who are aware of what's going on, teenagers, 10 year olds, you know, the more I hear that they're depressed about the state of the world, realizing, you know, the crises that they're inheriting. And it just makes me super sad. You know, it makes me super sad because I'm going, wow, like I didn't have that. You know, life was rough when I was growing up, but I didn't have this impending sense of doom, you know. And that, that, that the adults had just left everything fucked up for me, you know? And I'm thinking, God, what would that, what that must feel like for a kid? And obviously, then I start thinking about what, you know, what my kid is going to feel like. And, you know, oftentimes I feel rage and disgust at the zombies and more so at those who are actively manipulating the zombies for profit and power. You know, our world is clearly insanely fucked up and we're facing existential crises really for the first time in our history. I mean, we've had world war and we've had, you know, very bad things and serious plagues that were way, way, way worse than COVID. But the combination of the climate emergency and fascism and plague, it does seem like this is existential. This is not like we might just get through it and have some rough decades. Like we could be going off a cliff here. And, um, and I realized that when I contrast the emotions you know, sadness versus anger, anger, that, you know, when I get angry, more often than not, that this leads me to be mean and coarse, and it leads me to emotions that make things worse. Whereas sadness seems to bring out more kindness and compassion because I just feel for the children. I feel for the animals. I feel for the endangered species. I feel for, you know, all the people who are suffering under the climate emergency or under injustice and racism. And again, sadness is not a great emotion and anger is not a great emotion, but I prefer sadness, you know, because it at least brings out the good emotions, you know, that might help heal these wounds. And so I know this isn't the most uplifting message to leave you all with, but I just want to recommend that if you're having a range of emotions in this zombie apocalypse moment, that the more they're towards sadness and kind of remorse, as if you can handle that, I think that will lead you to better places than rage and anger and disgust. And we all need to just think about how we can steer ourselves into better places. Because again, ignorance is not bliss, right? We can't just pretend that this stuff isn't going on and have no emotional reaction and close ourselves off. I don't think that's healthy. And so what I'm realizing is that if I'm going to hold on to an emotion in this mindset in this you know in this moment in history that I think sadness is is a more productive one than anger and I just kind of wanted to leave you with that thought um, because I do think we're going to have pretty strong emotions in these this era and I don't think it's going away I think it's going to be increasing because I think the crises are going to increase and we just need to 
make peace with whatever emotions and whatever kind of state of mind we're going to be in to be the most productive and the most happy for ourselves and, and be the best support for others around us. And so for me, I'm thinking if I can find a healthy way to incorporate sadness into my life, I think that might lead me into a productive place and, and try to minimize the anger and the rage. So with that, everybody, and if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Rate it. Subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can also um, uh, you know, uh, subscribe to the Spotify playlist if you like the tracks um, in these episodes. And so with that, everybody, uh, take care, be well, and stay safe. Thank you.